Let's take our Bibles again this morning and turn to the book of Job. And I'll get attention this morning to chapter 11. We encounter the third friend of, of Job, who now speaks for the first time in chapter 11. Let me read to you the whole chapter, verses 1 through 20. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Hear God's word. Then Zophar, the Naamathite, answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? Should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, My doctrine is pure, and I'm clean in your eyes. But, oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They're higher than the heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by imprisons and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a donkey's cult has borne a man. If you would prepare your heart, stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear, because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning, and you would be secure, because there's hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. You would also lie down, and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail, and they shall not escape, and their hope, loss of life. And thus far, God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open up this discourse of Zophar's father, that we would understand it in uh, what he's saying, but uh, also understand it in uh, terms of what he's doing, Father distorting uh, truths, scriptural truths, probably with good intentions, Father, but pointing out God's wisdom and yet uh, claiming wisdom for himself as if he knows those deep things. To that end, Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to look more closely at what Zophar has to say, this third friend that now speaks up, having heard from Eliphaz and Bildad, I think it's helpful if we remind ourselves of the nature of how to read Scripture. And I think we've talked about this before, that if you see a verse or verses, read the words, try to understand what the words mean. But it's also important to understand the context in which those words are spoken. And then thirdly, it's 
also very important that you understand what is being presented in those verses to look at the analogy of Scripture to make sure that what you're gleaning out of it, what your understanding of those verses actually lines up with what the rest of Scripture says because the Bible is harmonious. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, John, in his first letter in chapter 4, says a couple of times, one being in verse 8, the phrase, God is love. And there are many in the world who simply take that, that phrase and pull it right out of context. To the, to the world, the idea that God is love is, is given a very broad meaning, a kind of an all-encompassing meaning. And it sort of points to the fact that God's love, it, 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 it suggests that he is indulgent. That he doesn't really deal with rebellion and sin. God is love. How can there possibly be a hell, for instance? That would never be the case. Uh, they would look at a, what is written in the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 7, regarding God, where we read this, I form the light, I create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. And the, the worldling would say, oh, that can't be that God would create calamity. How can that be? Maybe he stands by and lets something happen. Maybe that's as far as they'll go. And there are some believing Christians who only go that far. When in fact, uh, what we read in Isaiah, God has ordained these things. And to the worldling, they say, that can't be. God is love. How can he create calamity? These terrible things that might happen in the world. But what they've done is to rip that phrase right out of the context. The, the whole point that John is making is God is love. And if we're really in God, believing, and in Christ, we should be characterized by love as well. In fact, he says further in that same letter, in chapter 5, at the very first verse, and we actually looked at it a little earlier today, He says, whoever believes in chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. It's demonstrating that he's regenerate, that God has brought him from death to life. And he goes on to say what characterizes that person. He says, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. That's the point of why John is saying God is love to his believing audience in that letter because he wants us to know that as Christians we are to be like our Savior. That is the evidence that we're actually in Christ, as the way Paul puts it, that we actually are joined by faith to Jesus Christ. Satan is a master of taking a phrase, a verse, a text, and yanking it right out of context not considering it at all, the analogy with the rest of Scripture. And in the process, what he does is distort these truths that are in Scripture. He misuses Scripture. He misuses the truths of Scripture. We read in Matthew chapter 4, for instance, actually at verse 5, that period when... Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan tried to tempt him in several ways to try to get him to sin, ultimately trying to keep him from what Jesus came to do, which is to save sinners. 
He wanted him to do those things where he could grab the reward for being obedient instead of doing those things to be obedient. And one of the temptations we read in verse 5, that the devil took him, Jesus, into the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, there's the doubt the very same tactic he used with Adam and Eve. Did God really say that? And uh, of course, the passage just before Matthew 4 is the baptism of Jesus, where the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And here is Satan suggesting, If you're the Son of God, trying the same tactic, do this. Throw yourself down from this pinnacle of the temple. For it is written, and here he goes, he quotes Scripture. He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Well, Jesus didn't fall for it. He recognized what Satan was doing. He was taking some verses right out of context and robbing those verses of the ultimate meaning. He's talking about how God does take care of his own. Jesus' response was, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. He saw what Satan was trying to do. And we know that the Satan is a murderer. Jesus said those very words about him. He's the father of lies. And sometimes he speaks through other people. And we've already seen that in the case of Eliphaz, the first one to respond to Job in the midst of his suffering. You recall perhaps what Eliphaz said back in chapter 4, verse 8. He said to Job, those who plow iniquity, in verse 8, and sow trouble reap the same. He was presenting a scriptural truth. You reap what you sow. That's in scripture. But he's misapplying it. He's distorting it. It doesn't apply to Job. And that's the conundrum that Job is wrestling with. Uh, Their whole approach was, you're suffering, Job, because you grievously sinned. That's why you're grievously suffering. You reap what you sow. And that's a misapplication of Scripture in that particular case. We saw it in the instance of Bildad. Remember what he said in verse 3 of chapter 8. Does God subvert judgment, Job? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? Of course not. And Job even agrees in the opening part of chapter 9. But Bildad is misapplying that. He's essentially saying, you're under judgment, Job. That's why you're suffering as you're suffering. Job, of course, knew that was not the case. There had to be some other explanation. He didn't know what that explanation was. But in both cases, you, you see this situation happening. Eliphaz and Bildad took truths out of the Bible, right out of context, and misapplied them. As such, they distorted those truths and essentially turned those truths into lies. And that's clearly the satanic influence that was coming over Eliphaz and Bildad, unknowingly, unwittingly. These are friends who meant well. These are friends who came to see Job. They sat with him for a time to show their sympathy, and they're trying to identify with his suffering. It's when they opened their mouth that problems began and no longer became comforters. And let's remind ourselves again the fundamental principle here, which is that is it possible for a good man who's wealthy and great, 
if he were to lose that prosperity, that wealth, and to lose his greatness, is it possible for him to still be good? Satan's proposition, as it were, to God is, no, he can't. If I, he goes through these things, he'll be exposed for what he is. If I can just get him, and this is Satan's mind now, if I can just get him to admit that he's not what he thinks he is, which is blameless. Of course, this, this is essentially attacking what God had to say about Job. Job, per what God said, is a blameless man. He's upright. He fears God and he shuns evil. I, if I can just get Job to admit this, he's not those things that God said. If I can get him to confess it and to repent, not only admit it, but essentially what he's driving at here with Satan is to get him to admit that his wealth and his greatness was the fundamental motivation for his, Job's worship and service. Wasn't that the challenge that Satan offered up to God. Does Job fear God for nothing? Remember that back in chapter 1, verse 9? Well, what we're going to see with this man, Zophar, that he essentially follows the same pattern of Eliphaz and Bildad. And the way that he begins his speech here, his discourse, you can almost picture him sitting, waiting his turn. Listening to Eliphaz, listening to Job's response, listening to Bildad, listening to Job's response. You can see him fidgeting almost, impatiently waiting, angry almost. We can't let this man just sit there and there has to be a response to these things he's had to say. Made me think of the verse in Proverbs. Chapter 18, verse 6, that a fool's lips, and that's what uh, Zophar thinks about Job, quite frankly. He's a fool. That's, that's exactly what Eliphaz said in the, the one who first spoke to Job. You're a fool, you're a hypocrite. And, and we read in Proverbs 18:6, a fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calls for blows. That's how frustrated someone can get when a fool is speaking that way. Of course, Zophar is not going to hit Job, but you can almost feel that he needs to be shown something here. It's too much for me to listen to this. There has to be a response. And then he says this about Job in verse 4. He says, you've said, Job, that your doctrine is pure and that you're clean. Well, actually, Job didn't say either one. He didn't make those kind of claims. It's true that Job, out of his confusion about what's happening to him, he didn't believe what his friends said about it, but he didn't really know either why it was happening to him. So out of his confusion, out of what was in fact his unbearable suffering, There, he came across as, as questioning God's justice, and he came across as, as complaining. Look at what he said back in, for instance, in chapter 9, verse 22. God seems to destroy the blameless and the wicked. It doesn't make any sense to me. There doesn't seem to be any distinguishing between those who are wicked and those who are righteous. I don't understand that. But Job never said he was clean, as Zophar suggests here. He never said, I'm pure. He never said, I'm sinless. 
Blameless, yes. And there's a difference. Blameless in that, as God said, himself said about Job, that he feared God. And that meant that he, he had a general direction in his life. To fear God is, is evidence that God has made a change in somebody. To see God for who he really is, that he is a holy, righteous God, and that we're the creature, and that we've sinned. He understood that. And he understood that the nature of the relationship with God had everything to do with the burnt offerings that he offered up. There has to be something. There has to be sacrifice. There has to be satisfaction for God, legal satisfaction. And God accepts that at this point in time as a means of forgiveness. But it had to be repeated until the coming of Christ. But he knew that he wasn't clean, but he also knew that I am blameless. I do fear God. And that's I, that you can look at the, my life. I avoid evil. I, I, I do the best I can to, to stay on that track. Not to earn anything, but as evidence that there's grace in me. There's sincerity there. What you see on the outside is what is in the inside. There's integrity. My heart's inclined. To love God, not perfectly, but it's inclined now to love God, to seek God, to worship God, and to serve God. Don't we get a lesson in learn a lesson here in listening? How important it is to listen and not come into it prejudging, which is exactly what Zophar is doing. He's got his mind made up already about him, and the tendency when you do that is to take certain things and exaggerate them or misrepresent them. And that's what Zophar's doing. We read this in the letter of James in chapter 4, verse 11. Speaking to Christians, don't speak evil of one another, brethren. He's not just speaking to the world there, he's talking to believers. Don't do that. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother, that's exactly what Zophar's doing here speaks evil of the law and judges the law. He set himself up in the position that God holds, and God holds only by doing this. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? absolutely applies to Zophar in this case, and it applies to us on occasions, doesn't it? Don't we sometimes go into a situation having already made up our mind? It really doesn't matter what that person has to say. And we're so infatuated with our what we think is our understanding that we, that we put a little spin on the words. You, you say you're clean and your doctrine is pure. Job never said that. How careful we need to be. Eliphaz, in speaking to Job, leaned on the authority of what he had to say in a dream that he had, if you recall. Bildad, when he came along, rested the authority of what he had to say on its tradition. This is what we've always thought. You're going against tradition. Job could see through that. In either case, he did not agree with what they had to say. And we've seen that Job finally says, I, I want to go and contend with God. If I only could speak to him directly, a, a kind of a courtroom scene, if I could question him, put him on the witness stand. Well, Zophar picks up on that. 
You, you want to go to God? You want to contend with God? Let me tell you what will happen. Because God is the one who has the secrets of wisdom. And in the New King James, he also, what will happen, they would double your prudence. I think the English Standard Version gives a little more understandable translation of that phrase. He says about God that he is manifold in understanding. What does that mean? That means that there's many aspects to God. Many things that are way beyond us. Paul gave expression to that in his letter to the Romans. After almost 11 chapters of very deep doctrinal truths of of sin and justification and sanctification, finally, as if he couldn't hold out anymore in the way God has orchestrated the saving of sinners. He, He says this in verse 33 of chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Zophar's right here. He'll show you the secrets of wisdom because the secrets of wisdom reside with him. He is, he is the one who is manifold in understanding. And he would wholeheartedly agree with what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 11. What happens with Zophar is he doesn't submit to that himself. He doesn't say, you know what, Job, it's all beyond me too. There are aspects of God I simply cannot get to because of who he is. Instead of having said that, instead of contemplating what he had just said and saying, you know what, Job, maybe there is more to this than we all realize. We've always been brought up on the you reap what you sow. And that's true. But maybe it doesn't apply in your case because you're suffering so grievously. Our previous understanding was that that's because of grievous sin, but maybe there's more to this. He doesn't do that. No, in fact, he goes the opposite direction. He presumes and arrogantly proceeds with, this is what God would say. (laughs) And what does he say? Look there in verse 6, the latter part of it. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. So he presumes to speak for God. You don't understand God, but I do. And this is what he would say to you. Now it's interesting that what he has to say in there is that God exacts from Job less than his iniquity deserves. That's true. That's a truth. Paul spends quite a bit of ink there in the opening chapters of Romans to make that point. He he addresses every category of human being. uh, Civilized, uncivilized, Jew, Gentile, never heard the law. and, and, And the summation of it all is you're all guilty before God. You have nothing to say, therefore be quiet. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat in that regard. And he goes on to say in chapter 6 that the wages of sin, it's interesting the word wages, what a, what a terrible exchange. The wages, the payment for your sin is death. What a terrible deal that is. 
takes us right back to the garden where we often go. In the garden, Adam was warned. He was threatened. If you eat from this tree, you will die. Adam had the opportunity, Adam who was perfect had the opportunity to show that he really had the love of God in his heart by being obedient. Well, he was deceived along with Eve. And sure enough, he died. Not just physically. It must have been quite a shock for both Adam and Eve to suddenly realize I have aches and pains and I, I'm starting, my hair starting to grow gray and white and I have wrinkles and the great change that took place physically. And he finally did die, but he also died spiritually. He didn't have that perfect love for God anymore. He didn't have that perfect knowledge of God anymore. There was that spirit of rebellion that was there. And he... And everyone associated with him, that's all of us, are justly condemned and sentenced because we're all lawbreakers. Not only have we inherited the guilt of his sin, and that's how God set up the economy of this world, that we would be blessed or cursed by the actions of Adam. If he continued in that state, then there there would be no rebellion. There would be that absolute access that Adam had to God. But once that happened, he was thrown out of the garden. He couldn't come into the presence of God anymore. And we have inherited the guilt of his sin, and we have of our own sin. All we need is our circumstances and time for that sin to come out. We're like seed beds when we're born. And what does God rightly impose upon those who are in rebellion? Well, look at the vision Daniel had in Daniel 12 at verse 2. There will be some on that last day who will be raised up to everlasting shame and contempt. Jesus spoke of on that day when he returns, the graves will all be opened and there will be some who remain in that rebellion. For them it will be the resurrection of condemnation. He talks about that in John 5 at verse 29. In Revelation there are several... References to the second death. What's the second death? Well, you die physically first. But the second death is is the final judgment when one is cast into hell. Uh, Not going out of existence, not being annihilated, but dead, meaning that you can no longer be what you were created to be. You see one of those instances in Revelation 20, verse 14. Jesus himself talked about those who remain in that situation of condemned and sentence, where there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Luke 13, 28. God rightly condemns, sentences those who remain in rebellion. And it's forever. Why is it forever? Because we've fallen away from God infinitely. Oh, but it's different for the believer. And really what Zophar says here is echoed by David in the Psalms. We read in Psalm 103 at verse 10. Zophar, having misused that that truth, he hasn't dealt with us according to our sins. Job, he's pointing to at this occasion, but David picks up that theme. Verse 10 of Psalm 103, he's not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us according to our iniquities. Why? 
This is what David goes on to say. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Why? Well, David points to that that characteristic of God of, of mercy. When Moses wanted to see the glory of God, God pointed out to him, I'll be merciful to whom I'll be merciful. Everyone deserves judgment. But I also want to show that I am a merciful God. And there are some I will extend mercy to. To go back to that same verse, Romans 6.23, where we know that the wages of sin is death. What's the alternative to that? But the gift of God, not something you work for, not something you earn, It's grace, undeserved favor. The gift of God is what? Eternal life. How? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Came at a price. Jesus fulfilled the law for the sinner. Obeyed every jot and tittle of it. Also paid the price for the sin of the believer in full. And now has made it possible uh, that God can justly forgive us. He doesn't overlook sin. He he really dealt with it on the cross. Jesus in the place of the believer. Now we are forgiven per the law. And now the law is written on our heart. That is what Christ also achieved in his death and resurrection. Purchasing new life. It's interesting what Paul says to Timothy. In his first letter in chapter 1, at verse 9, he says, Timothy, know this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the holy and the profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. And he goes on to list a number of grievous activity and manifestations of the fallen nature. What is he saying there? He's making reference to what God does with someone who's dead in their sins and trespasses. He gives them a new heart. He takes a stony heart out and puts in, replaces it with a heart of flesh, the, the greatest heart transplant ever. And no longer do we need the, a stone with the Ten Commandments written on it. It's written on our hearts now. It's more than just the work of the law. It's actually written on our hearts. An unbeliever still needs the impact of the law, the, 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 the stone tablet with a listing of the, of the commandments. Why? So that he can be a better person? No, to restrain him. That's what God said about the purpose of the law with the Israelites in the wilderness. You're never going to be perfect. You, you've got sin. You've sinned. You've rebelled. That has to be dealt with. And you also need the law to restrain you. And the law actually makes it worse. When we're told to do something, we no, I don't want to do it. When we're told not to do, to, to do it, we, we do it. That, that ministers of justice have to be put in place. That's why we have policemen. That's why we have magistrates, all, all the levels of law in this country. Rodney King asked so long ago, can't we just all get along? No. 
Not on a personal level, not on a family level, not on a state level, not on a country level, not on a world level. Millions of lives lost in wars and lost causes with League of Nations and United. None of them have achieved man getting along. We need, the laws are there and are our gift to keep this world in control. But for the believer, that law is written on one's heart. That's the great change that's taken place. The sins are dumped into the deepest ocean. The guilt of the sin and the power of sin is taken away. But for Zophar, it's different in his quoting of that truth, that he has not dealt with us according to our sins. Zophar is coming across as accusatory. Job, you think you're suffering now. Well, you haven't even seen half of what you deserve. You deserve more. there's, There's the Satan again. He's the accuser of the saints. There is the denial, essentially, of redeeming grace. That's the difference between the Psalm 103 quotation and what Zophar has to say. Both truths, but Zophar having taken it out of context and misapplied it. It's terrible and condemnation. It's terrible judgment that Zophar is offering for Job. But interestingly enough, Job, or Zophar rather, proceeds in what he has to say with a very majestic and a poetic picture of the vastness of God. You, you can't know him. Look, look at the, the language. Can you search out the deep things of God? They're, they're higher than the heaven. They're deeper than Sheol. Their measure is longer than the earth, broader than the sea. Beautiful description of, of God and the deep things associated with God. And he goes on to verse 10, though, to say this, uh, because God is this, he, he knows how to search out people like you, Job. He has Job in mind when he says he knows a deceitful man. He's suggesting, he's essentially telling Job, you're that deceitful man. You're that empty-headed man, in verse 12. That's his conclusion, taking that beautiful description of God and misapplying it. But apparently, once again, these deep things, apparently for Zophar, are not so deep to him. You don't know what's going on, Job, but I do. Clearly, you're the wicked man. Clearly, you're the empty-headed man. You wanted to go to court with God? This is what he would say. It's so arrogant. So presumptuous. He knows these deep things. And what's happening to you, Job, right now? He's found you out. And you're under condemnation. And this suffering you're going through is kind of like a prison for you. And you're just waiting to be sentenced. That's where you are, Job. So what does he say? What's the solution that he offers? Go to God. Turn away from sin. That's not bad advice in general. But he's misapplying it here as well because he hasn't committed these grievous sins. Christopher Ashe in his commentary talks about that Zophar is suggesting here the prosperity that Job enjoyed and gained was through wrongdoing, extortion, 
and other sins. That's how he got a hold of his money and his property. And he's telling Job, you need to repent of that. That, that, that you've been presumably been keeping this secret until now. That's what you need to know, do, Job. And if you do, he gives this beautiful picture. Verse 15, then if you do that, surely you could lift up your face once again. You could be steadfast and not afraid like you are now. You would forget all this misery. Remember those waters that have passed by. Your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning. You would be secure. There would be hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Many would court your favor. That's what he offers up to Job. If you don't do that, Job, there are awful repercussions. Confess. Just confess. Just admit it. Repent. And then will come the blessings. Or else. That's what he has to say to Job. Well, what if Job follows that advice? What if he finally admits, yeah, I guess I'm not blameless like I came across. He would be undermining and denying his own integrity. He'd be lying to himself, lying to them. But more importantly, he would essentially be admitting, yeah, you're right, that the worship and the service that I offered up to God was in order to gain that prosperity and that greatness. I would be admitting to you in doing this that if a good man who is prosperous and great loses his prosperity and his greatness, he wouldn't be good anymore. (laughs) He would have no incentive to serve God and worship God. And we're certainly reminded of what Satan said. Does Job fear you for nothing, God? That's what he wants to prove with, with Job. The good news here for Job is that everything that Zophar offered, this deceitful offer, really, satanic offer, all of the things that he suggested would happen, these are the very blessings that Job would be given. And you can read all about it at the end of the book. They're described there at the end of his trial. He would once again have safety and comfort and uh, prosperity. There would be those who would come to him for counsel. But look, look if you turn over a number of pages to the last chapter in Job. Even before God healed him, he was instructed to, to pray for his friends. And we read in verse 10 of the very last chapter that the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And thereby, through the whole course of the book, it will be proved that if a good man who's prosperous and great loses that prosperity and greatness, will he still be good? The answer is yes. How? Redeeming grace. 
That's what's at stake here for God. And God is not worried. He's not wringing his hands. He has something to put, he has Job to put on display. And in this way, God is glorified through Job's response here. Job becomes this showcase for this redeeming grace. He he struggles, no doubt, but he never finally does what Satan says he'll do, which is to curse God to his face. He won't do that. Why? Grace, faith. He's forgiven. He has new life in Jesus Christ. That's why he perseveres. And that's proven to be true. That which was inside became manifest in the way that he dealt with all of this. And he was blessed for his faithfulness. He didn't earn something. It's just blessings from a good and a gracious and a merciful God. Peter has something to say in his first letter, which I think is appropriate to look at in regard to what we've been seeing here with Job. In his first letter in chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who, and here it is, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the explanation of what happened to Job and how it turned out. And therefore, he goes on to say, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Here, this is so applicable. To Job, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, the honor, and the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls. And Job here in this book is really a type of Jesus Christ. Christ who went through sufferings that far outmatched what Job experienced. Sufferings through the whole course of his earthly ministry, and particularly on the cross. But there must be the cross before there comes the crown. The cross was necessary in order that God could have a people for himself. And now we're called to do the same thing. First the cross and then the crown. But just as Job experienced as a type of Christ, the reward as it were, Jesus received the reward for his faithfulness in going to the cross. So too the believer, is. we are now joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We share in his glory. And now we can have the perspective that Paul had, who suffered greatly during his ministry. He cataloged it in several places, but at one point he he simply says this. Those are all light and momentary afflictions, really, compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits me. 
if you're a Christian and a believer today, that, that that's there for you as well. And that's what perseverance of the saints is all about. And that's what, when you go through suffering, that it, it's to God's glory because that's when you are given the opportunity to shine. Patience, faith, long-suffering, all the fruit comes out. Will you do it perfectly? No. We're not perfect yet, but you're moving in, in that direction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these this these various speeches given by Job's friends, Job's responses. Father, we see how they will take a truth that's true, and yet they'll misapply it. And it's such distorted, and it becomes a deceitful lie ultimately in that way. Help us to be careful in how we read Scripture and understand it. Make sure we not only understand the words, but the context. And does it really, what we seem to understand from it, does it line up with the rest of what Scripture has to say? Thank you that we have the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to help us in that task. But help us to be workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing your word. Father, thank you for our Savior Jesus Christ, such that it really is possible that we have not received what we deserve. Our sins have been dealt with. The guilt of our sin and the power of sin. We've been released from that bondage of sin and we've been forgiven fully, just as if we'd never sinned, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I pray that that would be the reality for everyone in this room. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.